Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Owl Man of Greenhill Coppice by Ian Gordon. Seven. Sunday, October fifth, five thirty p.m. Van Melsen and Kane stood by the quiet bar of the Breadwinners, a pair of whisky glasses on the counter before them. Doesn't get much hotter than that," said Big Jim referring to the bottle of Isla single malt from which he'd poured the proffered drinks. Cain, without hesitation, down the contents of his glass, his reaction afterwards that of a seasoned professional, while inside his throat was a cavern of heat. Van Melsen followed suit, barely managing to stifle a cough as he did so. Blimey, he breathed. Tis a belly full of fire indeed. Big Jim grinned, nodding knowingly. "'And the whisky is supposed to do what again?' he asked, scratching his head. "'Provides a bit of Dutch courage,' Van Melsen said. "'I thought you were the Dutch courage,' Kane said, in reference to the investigator's surname. Van Melsen chuckled, saying, "'My father would approve of that.' Kane was tempted to inquire as to the man's heritage at this juncture, but given what the two of them were up against— decided to save such questioning for a rainy day. "'Come on,' said Van Melsen. "'We've got work to do.' Big Jim had decided to close the pub for the night, though villagers who lived alone were welcome to hang around if they so desired. The vicar stood by, as did Sally Relish, who, along with Jim and Maureen, offered prayers and blessings as the intrepid duo left the breadwinners. As they stepped into the chill of the October evening— Odie was immediately seen atop the pub's sign, waiting for them. "'Hello,' Kane called. "'Are you coming with us?' The owl shrugged its wings, then took off in a northerly direction. The pair noticed other night birds in the vicinity, numerous owls atop rooftops and lampposts, hoots arising from the encircling trees of Cardenham Woods. "'It worked,' Van Melsen muttered, mostly to himself. "'It actually worked.' The investigator's surprise stirred something in the young bookworm. It was further clarification that the occult detective wasn't as self-assured as he'd originally thought. He, like Kane, had waded up to his chin into the unknown, a reality of high strangeness that usurped all his previous investigations. Van Melsen had muttered of visits to abandoned lighthouses, tape recordings made in deserted cemeteries, but this— to be in the presence of a true Fortean beast, it seemed, was unprecedented. "'Do you really think we can get rid of this thing?' Kane asked suddenly, catching his counterpart with his defences down. In response to this, Van Melsen withdrew a cigarette. Kane had noticed this quirk before. The act of lighting a cigarette provided the man with the time needed to think up answers to questions for which he had no answer. "'Absolutely!' the man in the long black overcoat said, puffing on the white stick. Not a doubt in my mind. Bluster restored, he took off in the direction of Middle Street. Crossing the bridge over Greenhill Brook, the two continued in silence till they reached Bartholomew's Rise, a short but steep street, leading directly north to Church Walk. 
Above them, like the hulking lookout it was, loomed the massive red-brick church, its single eye reflecting the last of the daylight. There was nothing reassuring about that neo-Gothic monstrosity, nothing that spoke to the spirit. It seemed to speak only of danger and foreboding. This, then, Cain mused, was what had necessitated the glass of single malt. The pair continued up the street, their gazes locked on the eye of the church. Not once did that stained-glass rose window avert its intimidating glare. Reaching church walk, Cain spotted Odie atop the lich-gate. The bird shrieked warmly, a glorious, wholesome sound that invigorated the questing duo. "'That bird of yours, Norman,' Van Melsen said. "'She's quite a sight.' And she was. In the vanishing light of the evening, Odie's fawn feathers were luminous, her large eyes the colour and lustre of polished Whitby jet. The men passed through the lich-gate, and made their way to the back of the church, where, by the rear crypts, as directed by Father Redknapp, they would find a short flight of stone steps, and they found them without effort, thanks to Odie, who had made her way to the crumbling tomb above them, and was sitting atop it, hissing pleasantly. "'How does she know where we're heading?' Kane asked. Van Melsen shook his head, saying, "'I haven't the foggiest. Perhaps it has something to do with Millith having taken the form of an owl.' Kane shuddered then, remembering the sight of the owl-man at the top of the church beneath which they now stood, the very creature that had pursued him and Annie along those interminable passageways. "'Are you ready?' he asked, eager to put an end to the business. The investigator nodded, extinguishing the remains of the cigarette between thumb and index finger. Guided by the seemingly luminous glow of Odie above them, the men approached the flight of steps and peered into the gloom below. "'Didn't the vicar say there were a door down there?' Kane said, squinting. "'If there was a door down there,' Van Melsen returned, frowning, "'it's gone now.' And he was right. Below them was merely a dark opening in the cold earth, beyond which only blackness lay. "'Well,' Van Melsen grunted, clearing his throat, "'we'd better prepare ourselves.' From his satchel, the investigator plucked a hand-torch. Kane produced the one Big Jim had loaned him from a coat pocket. Van Melsen then spent a moment or two rummaging through the satchel for the small tin he'd packed. The tin— acquired by Kane and Annie at Beryl Horton's place, now contained a small portion of what he referred to as the solution. Where exactly the solution would be sown was a matter to be determined at a later time. For the moment, the pair could be at least reassured by the presence of Odie and the innumerable other night-birds that just then were hooting and swooping in and out of the cemetery smattering of trees, the owls and the unsung comfort of the single malt now deep in their bellies. "'Let's go,' Van Melsen said, beginning the descent. Cain, swallowing the butterflies that rose in his throat, followed directly behind, waving, in an empty sort of way, at Odie as he did so. The bird, in silence, glided down from its position above them, and landed on the young man's shoulder. In any other reality, Odie's simple act would have been mesmerizing— uncanny. But here and now, with the gloomy mouth below threatening to swallow them whole, it was just another event in a carefully orchestrated sequence.'
It was a strange descent, horrifying and deeply unsettling, but in the main, strange. Two oblongs of light danced across the stone walls of the sloping passage, Odie's wide black eyes caught by them sporadically. A mausolean silence haunted the tunnel, every resounding footstep an intrusion. And the scent, an otherworldly odour, not the kind of smell one might associate with graveyards and catacombs, but a bittersweet perfume that lingered on the back of the palate, like the duplicitous notes of cyanide. Van Melsen, first in the descent, was aware of his dilating pupils, as his brain fought to construe the dancing beams and the total blackness that surrounded them. He clung to the small tin in his left hand like a man overboard might cling to a boy, for the tin was a lifeline, their lifeline, his and Norman's, the young bibliophile he'd pulled into a weird nightmare. What if something was to happen to Cain under his guidance? A fate similar to that of Annie, the sapphire-eyed girl that had quite literally stolen Cain's heart. Listen, he whispered, turning to face Cain in the darkness, ignoring for the nonce the strangeness of the owl perched atop his shoulder. Why don't you head back? I'll take it from here. What? Cain returned, frowning. You shouldn't be here. You wouldn't be if we hadn't bumped into each other the other day. Wouldn't I? Van Melsen frowned. What do you mean? I don't know. I can't explain it. Seems you were waiting for me in that basement. Perhaps I was. So you admit it, then? Well, here the investigator hesitated, and would have fumbled for a cigarette if he'd a hand spare. Not consciously, anyway. It was just a feeling, like a voice in the back of my mind had directed me to that bookshop. Later, the two would discuss the voices they'd heard. They'd connect them to the voice Annie had heard, too. But there and then, in the hush of that dark tunnel, their voices were a bigger concern. Now you listen, Kane said quietly. We're going together. That's it. And Odie's coming, too. It was fortunate that, right then, Odie merely shrugged her wings, as opposed to announcing their incursion with a reverberant shriek. The descent continued. After several minutes, the men reached the bottom of the sloping passage. Beyond, there lay before them a large chamber of sorts, not the conglomeration of maze-like tunnels that were supposed to comprise the vaults. And this chamber, dank and putrid, was pitch black. Only the torchlight could provide clues as to the extent of the space and its contents. This place shouldn't be here, Van Melsen whispered. You think we've crossed the border again? Kane ventured. Undoubtedly. Odie was shuffling impatiently, her feathers ruffling Kane's hair. What is it, girl? He asked, shining his torch close to her heart-shaped face. But the owl couldn't speak, could only employ body language to communicate a message. And this message, as interpreted by the young man, was that they weren't to go any further into the chamber. Shining his torch at their feet, Van Melsen observed a faint white line, a line in the very stone beneath them, indicative, perhaps, of where the vaults ended and the vast chamber began. Further torchlight scans of the space beyond revealed other oddities, stacks of dead wood and piles of colourless leaves, 
curious mounds of dark brown soil and everywhere a shiny residue like snail slime. The air was close and humid, lending a horrible oppressiveness to proceedings. It's a nest, Kane ventured. But it's no owl's nest, he added, shuddering. You may be right, Van Melsen agreed, studying the white line at his feet. Here, he went on, this is the spot. The solution must be sown right here. here. Van Melsen's excitement got the better of him. This is evidenced by the words, right here, echoing throughout the vast chamber beyond. Handing his torch to Cain, he opened the small tin, and was about to begin sprinkling it on the ground, when another voice filled the space. "'Talk about Dutch courage,' came the strange voice. And it was strange, at least to Van Melsen's ears, for it belonged to his father— a man long dead. Odie shrieked then, an indication that their attempts at stealth were no longer necessary. But the investigator remained silent. Look at you, fumbling about in the dark, and you dare call yourself a professional. And the stranger, unrevealed by the searching torchlights, laughed hideously. Van Melsen was frozen in place, mesmerized by the sinister voice. With Odie shuffling wildly now, Cain, unaware of the reason for his partner's hesitation, grabbed the tin from his hands, pushed him aside, and immediately began sprinkling the solution on the ground. "'What's this?' the horrible voice continued, somewhat distorted now. "'Afraid to get your niece dirty, are we, Peter?' Right then, Van Melsen snapped out of the trance that had held him. But it was too late.' A chain of events had been set in motion that he was incapable of averting. "'Norman!' he yelled, the cry redoubled by the sudden screeching of Odie, who, spooked by something, flew into the air, flapping her wings violently above their heads. Cain, crouched as he was, glanced upwards to witness the appalling approach of what can only be described as a quivering black mass.' Even in the light of the torches that Van Melsen shone upon it, the thing appeared as black as the space between the stars, advancing with the relentless determination of a predator on the savannah. "'Move!' Van Melsen screamed, but the command was futile. Cain dropped the tin, spilling the rest of its contents haphazardly on the stone floor. Bracing himself for the impact of the thing, he instinctively threw his arms up in the air— one last, fruitless act of self-defense. But the thing, seemingly larger than the chamber it occupied, extended dark, coiling tendrils towards those raised limbs, took them in its damp, sticky grip, and pulled, pulled hard. The pain was so great that it brought tears to the eyes of the young man. He felt as though his arms would pop out of their sockets— he screamed, a meaningless, wordless howl that did nothing to deter his pursuer. In the beams of light that still danced about the mass, Cain caught fleeting glimpses of facial features, apertures that could have been mouths, eyes, or nostrils, protuberances that might once have passed for imitation feathers, flashes of color indicative of otherworldly, kaleidoscopic biology that, even as the thing held him, vice-like, was impossible to fully comprehend. With Odie in the air above his head, flapping her wings maniacally, 
The young man listened intently to the mumbling of Van Melsen, who, by the light of one of the torches, was flipping back and forth through the copy of Millith, looking for anything that might be of use to them in the moment. "'Hold on, Norman!' the investigator yelled periodically, as his hopeless search continued. And it was hopeless, for Cain could no longer fight the pull of the creature. It had been weakened, no doubt, by the presence of the solution beneath his feet. The white line was now a dangerous border that the beast simply couldn't cross. But Cain's arms were over this line, and soon enough he too would be over the line, dragged into a nightmare world beyond the reckoning of men. What could he do? What could he say? Wasn't this the stage in the nightmare where you awoke screaming? No, this wasn't a nightmare, and the screaming was ongoing. And then, just as he was about to yield to the creature, leaving Van Melsen to ponder the young man's fate for the remainder of his days, there sounded yet another voice, a voice that emanated from the darkness beyond the black shape. It was Annie's voice. No! she yelled. No more! But that was all. Cain never caught a glimpse of her, nor did he hear her voice again. All he saw... All Van Melsen saw was a rapid rotation of shadows before them, like the frantic revolutions of a great wheel. Round and round the shadows went, gradually reducing in size. It was the closing of a localized rift, but there, stretched across the dark border, were Cain's arms held in the unyielding grip of the spiraling Millith. It was over in an instant, the briefest of moments— the swirling blackness reduced to zero, leaving nothing behind. The chamber, the nest of Millith, was gone. Van Melsen rushed to Cain's side, but what he saw there truly shocked him. Odie swooped down from above, landing next to her friend, careful not to disturb him, for there he sat, cross-legged on the stone floor, illuminated now by the orange bulbs of the vaults, his arms missing— from the elbow down. Postface Norman Kane, by the piano in Kane's rare books, with surprising deftness, topped up Wax's tumbler. Topping up his own, he sighed, a touch of melancholy colouring his pale cheeks. Wax was at a loss for words, had been at a loss for words throughout the entire spinning of Kane's curious yarn. She looked at him, saw the sadness, looked at his plastic hands, shook her head. I know, he said. There's a reason folk really get to hear that story. Wax sipped at the contents of her glass. Whiskey had never tasted quite so mundane. The art and design student with the kinky hair was no stranger to weirdness. It was one of the reasons she'd come to know Norman in the first place. But this— this was next-level stuff. And then an unusual expression washed over her face, one of excitement and intrigue. What about the book? she asked eagerly. Do you still have it? Kane nodded. I do. It formed the basis of the private collection. Wax swallowed audibly, knowing that the subject of Norman's secret stash was generally taboo. It's downstairs, she asked, her voice full of wonder. It is, 
he replied. Although the old man Blakely tore out and burned a great deal of it, me and Peter still felt it needed to be put under lock and key. Were the police called in? Yeah, the disappearances of Annie Palmer, Cuthbert Baxter, William Barrycloth, and of course Michael Blakely, whose body disappeared from Baxter's house on Barker's Raw, had to be reported. But we decided, and the residents of Greenhill were in agreement here, to keep our mouths shut. None of us mentioned the Book of Millith, Owlman, the Cows, etc. As for my arms, he added, noticing Wax's gaze fixed on his plastic ones. They were just gone. Like I'd never had arms below the elbow. No blood, no wounds. I told my friends up here that I'd been in an accident, and that the circumstances were just too painful to discuss. Parents were long gone, which I suppose spurred me from what would have been the most difficult explanation of all. Kane sighed, looking down at his imitation hands. What happened to Odie? Wax asked. This brought a smile to Kane's weathered face. The little beggar stayed with me for a while, he said with real warmth. Nursed me back to Elf. Went back to her own after that. I'll tell you this for now. She was one of a kind, that one. Wax grinned, enjoying her employer's sincerity. What about the voice you heard? She went on. The inner voice. Kane nodded, saying, Ah, no couth. The swinging pendulum. That's a story for another day. Undeterred, Wax asked, And Annie? Do you think she's still out there somewhere? I hope so. After all, he said, reaching for something hidden amongst a pile of scarves. I still have a shawl. And out it came, Annie's grey shawl, musty with age, suggestive of missed opportunities and a life unlived. Wax gasped, placing a hand over her mouth. I dream about her all the time, Kane continued, clutching the shawl. Lives in a big old house. She can't find a way out, and I can't find a way in. Wax frowned at this. A big old house? She repeated. Kane nodded, his eyes narrowing. Sometimes I dream of a big old house, she said. Surrounded by water, with mountains in the distance. Here she paused, as though searching for something important. And there's someone inside who wants to get out, but they can't find a way out. And just as you said, I can't find a way in. Absently, Cain reached for his tumbler, bringing it to his lips blindly. Who's inside? He asked gingerly. Wax shrugged her shoulders. I don't know. It's more of a feeling than anything else. A big old house, surrounded by water, mountains in the distance. Cain repeated, lost in his thoughts. Do you know a place like that? Wax asked. Not yet, he answered. Not yet. <laughs>